0: Tonight, I want to challenge your thinking. If I get to your heart, I want to do it through your mind. I always, almost always say that. Why? Because Christianity is a thinking faith. Christianity is an appeal to truth faith. So you don't start with the heart. You start with the mind and trust to God. You end up in the heart. I'm going to speak. I'm probably one of the most confused concepts in the world. And the reason I say that, I can almost never, ever, ever, ever find anyone that can define this concept. It's crazy. And that concept is love. We use it all the time. I did it because I loved him. I loved her. I loved him. I did it because of love. He loved me. He loved. And yet nobody can define it. It's like, oh, I did factor X. He factor X's me. And... It's kind of confusing to me over the years how people always say I did it because I loved them and I'll say define love, they can't do it. I did a test once with a crowd of 1, 000, about 1,200 high school and college students, 10th, 12th grade and university and I said how many of you had your parents ever define love for you? Three hands went up. That's a crime, that is a crime. Only three hands went up. Uh, I constantly over the years asked people, define love, define love, define love all over the world. And I've concluded that maybe three people out of a thousand can define love. And yet we say it's one of the greatest motivations in our life. And so I want to do my best from the scriptures to define love. And how do you define love? I'll go out in the crowd. If I had time and could walk out in the crowd here, like I do, many say I'll walk up and say, "Define love, define love, define love, define love." Or I'll walk out in the crowd and say, "Why is the Bible true? Why you never hear a good answer. <laughs> why is the Bible true? It's amazing. I've been in pastor seminars, and I'll go out and say, "Tell me why the Bible's true." Well, uh, mm, uh, well what about love? One of the first answers I always get, at least these three will always be the f- first of five answers you would get going around the crowd. Define love, God. What? Define, how do you define love, God? Well, if you can't define love, that's a meaningless statement. God is factor X. You know, say define love. And you always get this one. And people puff up their chest, and it's kinda like, well Josh, don't you know the Bible? First Corinthians 13! I'll go, oh no, no, please. And I'll take my Bible and say, show me one verse in First Corinthians 13 that defines love. There is none! That's what everybody say, 1 Corinthians 13, well that's the love chapter. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't define love, It shows what love does. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love thinks the best. Now, the key question is, what is it that is kind? What is it that thinks the best? What is it that is patient? That's love. But what is love? And then you'll always get this one, especially among young people. Define love. Feelings. I said, oh, God. Woo! We got to get beyond first grade. Uh... If love were a feeling, God couldn't command it. God couldn't say, love one another. Why? You can't command an emotion. You can't say, feel better. So God wouldn't be able to command love. Now, think it through. To command someone to do something, what does it have to be involved? I think it has to involve a decision of the will that leads to an action or a decision. To command someone has to involve an act of the will to do something, an action, or make a decision. So love can't be a feeling. Several years ago, they had a major study come out of evangelical Christian young people I don't like the word evangelicals lost so much meaning today. Young people who would consider themselves true followers of Jesus. And they asked the question Is sex okay if you're in love? If you're really in love, is sex okay? 38% of these Christian young people said yes. But you know the amazing thing? I could guarantee you. 98% of them can't even define love. But they said, if you have what I can't define, it makes sex right. Do you see how crazy that is, folks? How in the world do you find love? Well, in Ephesians 5.28, it says, so husbands ought to love their own wives, not their neighbors, not their boss's wife, to love their own wives as their own body. What does that do with defining love? The next verse. Ephesians 5 29 says this. Now let me go back. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. No one ever hates his own flesh. But what does that but introduce? The opposite of hatred. The opposite of hating your own flesh introduces loving your own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The it refers back to his own body, not his wife, to his own body. Just as Christ also does the church. Now what in the world does that mean? When my son was about 11 years old, by 10, 11 years old, uh, my kids probably knew more doctrine than most seminary graduates. uh, Because most of us can't understand how much young people can learn, how much children can learn about truth. It's mind boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. So I would start very young with my children, introducing doctrine to them, truth and everything, why believe, apologetics. And so my son said, Dad, what does that mean, to nurture and to cherish? I said, well, son, to nourish means to bring to maturity. To nourish someone or to nourish something means to bring that person, that individual, to maturity, It's like your mother says to you, when you come home from school tomorrow, I want you to fertilize the flower bed. What is she asking you to do? She's asking you to take nutrients, put around the dirt of flowers. Why? So that they'll come to maturity and blossom. That's what to nourish means, to bring to maturity or to cause to blossom. And Jesus, and then course, my son said, Dad, in what area did you nurture yourself? I said, well, Jesus is a pretty good model, son. Uh, and he was nurtured in four areas. You say, what? Jesus was nurtured? Yes! In Luke 2, it says, and Jesus kept increasing, nurtured, in wisdom and stature, and in favor with men, and in favor with God. So I said, son, there's four areas you by an act of your will, nurture yourself to maturity if you love yourself like the Bible commands. Because that's the basis of loving someone else. So I said, there's four examples of how to nurture yourself if you love yourself like we're told to in the Bible. One is wisdom, mentally. In stature physically in favor with god spiritually and in favor with men relationally but i said son that's only half of love it says to nourish and to cherish now to cherish doesn't mean to adore something or someone doesn't mean oh i love it i love it so beautiful i adore them i cherish it that has nothing to do with it to cherish means To care for. In the context here, it means to care for in the sense of to protect. If you cherish someone, you care for them in the sense of you protect them. What is the simplest definition of love? I always say you can't define a major... A major concept or a complex concept with less than seven to nine words and not leave something out. And so what I'm going to do is the impossible. What I always said is impossible to define it. I'm going to take the most intricate concept, love, and I'm going to define it in three words and absolutely leave nothing out. Not everything biblically is going to be incorporated to do with love with just three words So remember my whole sermon tonight, what love is. All you have to do is remember three words. That fly loves me. (laughs) So first, to nourish means to provide. To cherish means to protect from anything or anyone that would hinder that providing process. So you put the two together. Here's the simplest definition of love. Protect and provide, period. That covers everything. Everything in the Bible on love, it covers. Protect and provide. The Bible says, He who loves his own wife loves himself. But boy, aren't we taught you shouldn't love yourself? I heard it a lot in church, Bible church. It's sinful to love yourself. You're supposed to love the Lord thy God, love others, not yourself. That is so unbiblical, it's pathetic. That shows someone is totally ignorant of the scriptures to ever say you shouldn't love yourself. That has probably destroyed more marriages, more relationships, more homes, more children, anything else, the teaching you shouldn't love yourself because of the devastating consequences of it if you don't love yourself. In Ephesians 5:33 says, "Nevertheless, each one among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, even as himself." And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Say, "Yeah, but I just don't think you should love yourself." When Matthew, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Come on, teacher. Come on, pastor. What's the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. That's not how you're supposed to love others. You loved others that way, you destroy the relationship. That's how you're supposed to love God. How are we supposed to love others then? That's how you love God. That's not how you love others. Then how do you love others? The guide is how you love yourself. What? Yeah. Jesus said, and the second, the second what? The second commandment is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you got to love yourself first. Because how can you love your neighbor if you haven't loved yourself? It says love your neighbor. What's the guide for that? Not how you love God, how you love, whoa. That's a little different. Doesn't that sound heresy? As you love yourself. <clears throat> And if there's any other commandments summed up in this saying in Romans 13, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When one of my three daughters, Katie, she must have been about six years old, (coughs) she was with me one night when I was speaking near my house on love. And on the way home in the car, she was kind of quiet. And I said, honey, what are you thinking? She said, Daddy, do you know what Jesus said? I said, Well, honey, he said a lot. What do you mean? When he said, Love your neighbor as you love yourself, I said, Yes. Now, listen to what my daughter said. This is so profound. This is more profound than most theologians. She said this Daddy, if you don't love yourself, your neighbor really has problems. That's profound. And it's true. I I say to young ladies, I say to all these young ladies down here, and I run home with, with my daughters, don't ever, 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 ever marry a man who does not love himself. Your marriage will be a disaster. Your children will suffer from it. Never, ever, ever marry a man who does not love himself. It's probably the number one reason for divorce. It's number one reason for heartbreaking marriage is a man never learned, was never taught by his father, never illustrated by his father, never was taught the scriptures to love themselves and what it means. How do you love yourself? Say, well, wait a minute, Josh. I always wait for this. Because if we have a long Q&A here right now, one of the first questions that pop up and some of you popped your seat and you'd come on a little forceful with me, which I love, and you would say, Josh, haven't you read 2 Timothy 3? I, I smile a little bit on the inside and say, Yeah, but you probably have, but you don't understand it. And some people get offended with that. But I, it's a it's a true statement. They've read 2 Timothy 2 3, but they've never studied 2 Timothy 2-3. It says, people in the latter days, in the end days, one of the biggest signs of the end days and even the world is people will be lovers of themselves. And Josh, you're teaching us heresy. I probably had 10, 12 pastors send me emails telling me that. and It just breaks my heart because they don't understand God's word. In 2 Timothy 3.2, when it says people become lovers of self, uses the Greek word philautos, philautos. Philautos, like many other words, comes from two root words put together, phil and autos, like auto. Phil and autos. Philas means friendship. It means friendship, philas. Auto means self, like automobile means You don't take a taxi or bus where somebody else drives you somewhere. You drive yourself in your automobile. You drive yourself to your destiny. Autograph. You personally sign it. Somebody else doesn't. Autonomous. You alone do it without any help of anyone else. You're totally auto self contained. Autonomous. The best way to define philautos is from Jude 1.18. That's one of the two. Whose purpose in life is to satisfy their own ungodly desires, philautos. Or in 2 Peter 3.3, scoffing and following their own evil desires, philautos. But Paul in Ephesians and other passages, uses a totally different word for love. And all of you know what it is, agape. The first time I said it was agape. <laughs> realized later it's not. <laughs> That's when you make a joke and say you're just being funny. And, uh, but agape, you all heard that term. But I wonder if you really understand it. I didn't for a long time. Agape means to put others First, to think of their desires, their needs, their wants. But wait a minute, Josh. You just quoted all these passages. You're to love your neighbor. You're to love your wife. You're to love others. How? Not as you love God, as you love yourself. Isn't that sinful? No, that's agape. That's totally different. And, and the unique thing that people don't grasp, and I didn't for a long time, in agape, is that to truly agape, you must love yourself first. Agape yourself, as the Bible says, then you can agape others. And the the meaning behind it is this. To agape means to protect and provide. If you don't protect and provide for yourself, physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally, you will not have the capacity to agape someone else to protect and provide for them. You won't have the foundation for it, the resource for it. That's why the Bible says agape others as you agape yourself. As we protect and provide ourselves, then we have the capacity through the Holy Spirit to protect and provide for others. That's what agape means. And a good illustration of that, at least it was for me, I've made now, oh, I don't know, almost 30,000 airplane flights. I've done everything, crash landed three times, but I survived. Uh, crash landed three times. every. You name it with a plane, <laughs> I've experienced it, and I was fearful most of the time, even though I was trying to trust in Jesus. You can talk about all the trust you want until you got three engines and two go out, or you got four and one or two go out. You start getting a little nervous. And... uh We got on this plane, and you hear this all the time, but I heard it in a different context. It said, if we have problem with air in turbulence or anything else, oxygen mass will come down out of the top part of your seat. And the mothers, maybe they saving, they got a little child with them. I got to say, I love my child. I want to protect brother, I got to put the mask on my child. No. That is not loving that child to put the mask on them. What do they tell you to do? They say, first do what? Put the mask on yourself. Then put the mask on your child. Well, why would they say that? Well, if you've ever been a plane, with a, and when those masks come down, you panic, in love, I think. <laughs> um, when those masks come down, you panic. And you immediately wanna grab it, if you had a little child, and put it on them. But here's the problem. You go to put an oxygen mask on a child, you ought to watch, they tear it off, they went, no, 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 and they'll fight you with it. You have to hold it on them. But if you haven't put your mask on, you will pass out, then the child and both of you will die. That's why they say, first put the mask on your, protect and provide for yourself. Then you have the capacity, agape, to protect and provide for your child. Do you see that? To me, that was a clear illustration of agape. Put your own mask on first. Then you have the capacity to truly protect and provide for your child. In the area of love, we we owe our children two things. One, a definition. A definition. I think it's a crime when kids go through life and their parents and usually their church the same way the pastor never defines love. I've yet to hear one pastor define love. I've heard scores of sermons on love, but nobody ever defined it. Nobody ever defined it. And that's almost evil. Because we tell our children, you should love one another. You should be a loving person, right? You need to treat others lovingly. Honey, is that treating that person lovingly? You need to be a loving person, but never define it. And folks, this is no isolated situation. So the young lady starts dating this fellow. She really likes him. And one night he says to her, I love you. I want to show my love to you. Girls, you know what that means. I want to show my love to you. What does that girl do? I'm supposed to be a loving person. My pastor preached I should be loving. I should be loving. My parents taught me to be a loving child. But I think it's wrong, but I got to be loving. The turmoil The anxiety that causes in a young person is incredible because they never had love defined for them. We owe our children a definition of love. Second, we owe our children a model of love. As parents, we owe our children a model of a man loving a woman and a woman loving and respecting her husband. Every child deserves that. But I wonder how many, even in Christian homes, truly get that. Far too few. I hurt for any child that grows up without a definition of love and a model of what it looks like. Because kids learn visually first. They can hear it. But they can't put meaning to it, usually, until they see it. We owe that to our children. A motto of love. God is love. Yes, God is love. But what does that mean? Take the word love, put the definition in it. God protects and provides. That's love. God is love. God protects and provides. You say... And I felt this as a non-believer. Even after I became a Christian, I thought Christianity was so negative. I did, ooh. I went to a small Bible church, which was a great Bible church, but boy, it was so negative. And the whole thing was, I was interpreting it as negative. Don't do this, Don't thou shall not, thou shall not, don't do this, don't do, it's all I ever heard. And I thought, I'm not sure if I even wanna be a Christian. It's so negative. What they didn't point out, and every parent owes us instructions to a child. Every pastor owes it to to their church. That every single commandment is positive. It's not negative. Every time God says, thou shall not, is positive an act of love. God is love. His commandments come out of his very being. When God says, Don't do that, don't do that. He's saying, I love you and I wanna protect you and provide for you, so don't do it, wow. After a while, it totally revolutionized my relationship with God the Father, from negative to positive. To a loving Father, not like the Father that I had. A loving Heavenly Father. We owe that to our children. In Deuteronomy 10:13, it says, and to keep the Lord's commandments. There you go, negative. Well, listen. And his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Why? For your good. Not for God's good. Not for others. For you. What? God gave his commandments for my good, not his. Yes. Most of the time we think the commandments are to protect God's holiness and righteousness. Yeah, look, you're not that strong, you're not that big. He gives us his commandments to protect and provide for us. Whoa. And then look at Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. What he's saying is, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to protect you and to provide for you. I love you. I wish every young person could grasp that concept of who God is and the scriptures. It's positive. But you don't learn it through one talk or one thing. You got to hear it over and over again, study. It's got to be reinforced by mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, the pastor, the youth leader, everything has to be reinforced before a child can really grasp it. God truly loves me. And he has a plan for my life. And part of that plan is to love me, to protect and provide for me. Flee immorality. There you go again, Josh. Negative, negative. Don't do this. Don't. Wait a minute. Flee immorality. For every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. What God is saying. Immorality because I love you and I want to protect you from the one sin, the one sin that literally will affect your body. That's positive, not negative. To protect and provide. How's that often expressed? One time I sat down and wrote out about 15 lines that mainly men use. Women use them too, but not quite as much as men. They're pathetic lines. For example, well, if you love me, you will let me. Janet, if you really love me, you would let me. You know the answer? (laughs) I love it. If you really love me, you wouldn't have asked. And that's true. Think of it. If you truly loved me, you wouldn't have asked. Because you know it wouldn't have been protecting and providing for me. See, most young ladies don't even know that. So they think, like mom and dad says, you gotta be a loving person, the pastor preaches you got to be a loving person. Then I need to give in if I'm a loving person, because that's honoring to God. Or the line, oh you hear this. <laughs> this is one of the stupidest of all of them. Well, everyone is doing it, then I would answer, and it shouldn't be too hard to find somebody else. <laughs> It it shouldn't be that hard. Besides, everybody is not doing it. That's one of the biggest lies of of life, that everyone is doing it. No, they're not. And then this one. (laughs) And the girl says, well, let me make a man out of you. What in the world does sex have to do with being a man? A dog can have sex, It doesn't make it a man. It doesn't even make it more of a dog. A 12 year old kid can have sex, it doesn't make him a man. How dumb the lines we use. And the thing is, so many people fall for him. They fall for him. Flee immorality for it's the one sin you commit gets your body. In 1960, not many of you can remember back that far. In 1960, of all teens in the United States who ever had sex, only one out of 60 were infected with a sexually transmitted disease. In 1970, one out of 47 were infected. In 1980, one out of every 36 teens who had ever had sex were infected with an STD. In 1990, one out of 26. In 2000, one out of 12. In 2010, one out of every four teenagers who had ever had sex were infected with a sexually transmitted disease. In 2019, one out of two, 50%. I don't have the stats for right now because it takes a couple years to let it go and, and be able to check it all out. But I would say right now, it's probably one out of every 1.5. Out of every 1.5 teenagers that have ever had sex, <laughs> one of them is infected with a sexually transmitted disease. And you know the one it often is, and nobody talks about it, HPV. Probably most of you young ladies never even heard of it. HPV. Human papilloma virus. Young ladies, all the young ladies here. The American Cancer Institute says that 99% of all vulvar and cervical cancer comes from HPV. A sexually transmitted disease. You can almost say cancer is a sexually transmitted disease. But here's a tragedy. With HPV, 99% of all over cancer, in the latest studies, all of North America, Canada, United States, Mexico, including Texas, all Central and South America, of all those who have ever had sex, just with HPV, 70% are infected With HPV. It just breaks my heart. The consequences of that, everything. God loves us. He says, don't commit sexual immorality. Flee immorality. Why? Not because I want to make you miserable. Not because I don't want you to have any fun. I ask you not to because I love you. I have a plan for you, and that is to protect you and to provide for you everything that I have built in to sex the way I created it. We all have choices. When God says, wait, that's not negative, it's positive. It's not saying no to sex because it's so sinful. It's saying yes to waiting because it's so beautiful. Let me repeat that. It's not saying no to sex because it's so sinful. Absolutely not. It's saying yes to waiting because it's so beautiful. And somebody says, Was it too late for me? Absolutely not. I've never met an individual where it's too late. But if you don't correct it, it will be too late at some time. God can forgive, he can replenish, he can make whole, but it comes down to our decision. And to me, this is one of the most (laughs) <laughs> Love is one of the most saddest things you can talk about, yet it's one of the most exciting things in life. And it comes back to the parents, usually. It comes back to the parents. They never talk to their child. I have an adopted daughter. If Dottie and I were younger, we would adopt two or three more. <laughs> My kids would love it. I have three daughters. One's an adopted daughter and a son. And people walk right up with my kids there and they say, now which one of your children is adopted? As if they couldn't tell. She's half Hispanic, beautiful sun skin, dark black hair and all. You just look at my kids. I got a blonde, blue-eyed. You know who's adopted. And they'll say, which one of your children do-? My children love it. I'll go, this one. No. Uh, this one. No. And you can see the people standing there. Man, he must be dumb. He doesn't even know which one of his children is adopted. My kids love it when I do that. And um, my adopted daughter, I guess I can share it in this crowd. Uh, (laughs) Probably the only ones that really understand this are you young ladies here and young men in the crowd. But um, how old was she? I don't know, 9, 10 years old. Now, you have to understand, my children, by six, seven years old, they probably knew more about sex than the average 15, 16-year-old kid. For me, to help a child stay pure is not through ignorance. It's through knowledge. You get that? It's not ignorance. Oh, they're too young. We don't talk about that. That doesn't help a child. What helps a child is knowledge, especially coming from their father, whether it's a girl or a boy. Where was I? I forgot what I was going to say. Hey, where was that girls? Oh, yeah. And uh, she was in a very nice argument. It was a very pleasant argument with her older two sisters and brother. And they were arguing about who is dad's favorite. And so... My little adopted daughter said, I am daddy's favorite. And he said, how can you say that so dogmatically? Because mom and dad chose me. You could be a broken condom. (laughs) Do you get it, girl? I mean, no, that's true. (laughs) I had to go out in the garage and laugh when she said that because you don't dare to laugh in front of them. But that's true. (laughs) Oh, boy. You never expected to hear that tonight. No wonder some of you are going to get baptized. (laughs) But anyway, I was brought into this love relationship with God through trying to make a joke of it. My first book, which I don't have here, it's a great big thick one over there called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think it's over there. I wrote that one to make a joke of Christianity. I got sick and tired of these Christians witnessing to me and talking about the Bible and Jesus and the resurrection. So I decided I'm gonna write a book to silence them. So I left the university. I'd made a lot of money in my first two years, traveled all through England, Germany, France, Switzerland, the Middle East, gathering evidence to write it. And uh, it's when I realized that if I were the only person alive, Jesus still would have died for me. Whew. Folks, that's heavy. I learned that through rationalizing through Scripture and all, but mainly I learned it that the Holy Spirit drove it home in me. That if I were the only, it's true of you, if you were the only person alive, Christ still would have died for you. Boy, it's hard to grasp that. You want something really hard to grasp? This is one that I still can't explain, but I know it's true. That the God, creator, God of the universe, wants me, Josh McDowell, to spend eternity with him. Now try try to think that ras it through. God, creator of the universe, wants you, with all your past, everything else, wants you to spend eternity with him. That's what brought me to Christ, those two phrases. And then when I finally concluded intellectually, it's true. That didn't mean I wanted to become a Christian, but it meant that I had a conscience that came alive. And so that December 19th at 8.30 at night, I got along with a friend of mine, made sure my other friends weren't watching. I was a coward. And I said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Second, I knew the Bible was true. I knew the Bible said, if we confess our sins, these faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I had no idea what that meant. I, I'd never been to a Bible study or anything, but I kind of knew what confess means. So I said, God, whatever that means, I do it. I confess my sins. Here they are. Third, again, I knew the Bible was true and I knew Jesus said, but to as many as received him, not knew about him, not that went to church, not that was sincere, says to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. Now I'm thinking, what in the world does that mean? Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how am I supposed to receive him? And then somebody shared Revelation 3.20, and it came, I stand, Jesus said, I stand the door, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I thought, yeah, that makes sense. To receive someone, you need to open the door, you need to, so I just said, (laughs) I'm so glad God knew my heart, because I didn't really express it the right way, but I said, God, whatever that means, I do it. I open the door of my life, just come in. And the last thing I prayed, was just very simple. As best I recall, I said was, thank you. (laughs) Nothing happened, nothing. What did, I thought I was gonna vomit. I thought I was gonna toss my cookies. Because immediately I started to say, have I made an emotional decision I'm gonna regret intellectually? What will my friends, I didn't realize. (laughs) What will my friends say? Almost all my friends became believers almost all of them, except maybe two. But I didn't know that when I made that decision. And so I just fell sick to my stomach. But it took about six months, year, year and a half, and my entire life was changed. And the interesting thing, it's not what I sought in my life. Like my attitude started to change, big time. and. I didn't say, God changed my attitude. I didn't even think about it. But all of a sudden, one day I realized, boy, I'm different. I'm not cutting people apart. I'm not putting people down. I- I'm responding, not reacting. And all of a sudden, I realized if somebody said to me, I was still my frustration to them, they said, that's what Jesus said. You'll become a new person. Old things will pass away. Behold, all will become new. What about you? question I ask over the world. Do you know Christ personally? If you answer, well, I think so, (laughs) then you probably don't. If you answer, I hope so, then you probably don't know him. Because if you know Christ personally, (laughs) folks, you know that you know Christ personally. Christianity is not a religion. Boy, I learned that when I was a college student. Religious men and women trying to work their way to God. Through good works, religious rituals. If my good works outweigh my bad works, if I treat people kindly and everything, I will go to heaven. Oh, hogwash. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. All those things are good, but it has nothing to do with getting to heaven. and has been eternity with Christ. It's a relationship, not a religion. It's a relationship that comes around by trusting God's Son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us, was buried and raised again the third day, ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive me, come into my life. And this is a powerful thing to pray with it. Make me the person you created me to be. Thank you in Christ's name. If you haven't done it, you know what to do. But don't go through life and miss the greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. I wish everyone struggled with it the way I did. I tried everything to refute it. You know why? People say, why do you have such deep convictions over all these years? It's because I not only know what I believe, I know why I believe it. That's the difference between beliefs and convictions. A belief is knowing what you believe. Oh, I can go into church groups, everything, singles groups, and all these Christians, they can tell me everything I ought to believe about the Bible, about Jesus, about the resurrection, everything, but almost never can they tell me why it is true. And I've asked that over and over again in youth groups, everything. Well, how do you know it's true? Well, because I believe it. Oh, get real. Your belief makes nothing true. The difference between me and most people, most people believe it because they think it makes, them, makes it true. I believe it because it is true. My believing does not make it true. I believe it because it is true, what Jesus did in the cross, etc., and stand at the door and knock and we'll come into our lives. And so I encourage you to do that tonight. I'm going to see your hands here. How many of you here have made that personal decision? I want to go step. Made that personal decision maybe years ago in your life, but you've seen distinct changes in your life. Would you raise your hand? Wow. That's marvelous. If you haven't, maybe take one of those people sitting next to you, a young person with another young person, raise their hand and go up and say, Tell me your story. Ask them to share their story of how they came to know Christ. And that will help you more than you can ever think. So tonight, if you make that decision, I encourage you to tell somebody else within, within 36 to 48 hours. Even tonight, go to someone to raise their hand, somebody you know, and, and just ask them, well, what's your story? And then if they have any sense at all, they'll go into how you can have a story the same way.